The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we do thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come to worship you this morning. You've said in your word that we worship you by means of the Holy Spirit and truth, and that your word is truth. So we give to the study of your word the highest place in our worship. For it is as we study your word and we learn it that the Holy Spirit assimilates it into our soul so that we can indeed be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ and thereby glorify you in the angelic conflict, glorify you in our lives, and that is our ultimate purpose. So, Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we would be able to concentrate on the things that we are learning, and we're thankful that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand these things, to put them into practice in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last Sunday, we began the fifth chapter of Galatians. So open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. And we are studying a very important doctrine and one that is not often taught anymore. The doctrine of Christian liberty. And it's not often understood. Sad thing today is we live in an era when 99.9% of messages that are preached on a Sunday morning are very, what they call, practical homilies. They're very um, user-friendly, feel-good, warm, fuzzy, relational-type things that you could probably pick up off of any Internet site. Pull together four or five little outline points and a couple of nice little stories, and everybody goes home and they're happy. Or in many cases, if they come close to the Gospel at all, that's all you ever hear, and you never learn anything that the Scripture says about how to really grow and mature in the spiritual life. You never get beyond anything that is pure baby food. And that is really sad today because as believers we cannot advance in spiritual maturity. We can't grow. We can't receive the real spiritual nutrition we need unless we are taught from the entire realm of doctrine. The entire counsel of God must be taught in all of its detail so that we can have the spiritual nourishment necessary to grow and mature. Now, one of the fundamental doctrines for the spiritual life is the concept of freedom, the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, this is uh, one of those doctrines that is often abused. On the one hand, it is taken to one extreme, and it is the idea of Christian uh, or of antinomianism, the idea that, well, now that we're saved and we have grace and forgiveness and Christ paid for all our sins, it really doesn't matter what we do. As long as uh, we're saved, it's okay and, and uh, we're forgiven and we can just get away with anything. And that's an abuse of the doctrine of, of our liberty in Christ. On the other hand, there are those who say that we are, um, that define the freedom but in a very restricted sense and really redefine it and impose their own legalism on top of that and they get all caught up in what everybody else is doing, and as soon as somebody violates their taboos, 
then they instantly begin to talk among themselves and judge and criticize. And so the whole concept of grace and true freedom is lost. Freedom involves privacy, as we're going to see. And privacy is part of the priesthood of the believer. Now, privacy is also another one of those doctrines that is frequently abused by, by believers because they don't understand it. They want to take privacy in the same sense that, well, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do, and it's just between me and the Lord, so everybody uh, leave me alone and forget about it. And that's not the point of privacy either. Privacy, it, it's, it's partially true but partially wrong. See, privacy means that we do have the freedom to fail without somebody else always watching over our shoulder or criticizing us. But we're part of the body of Christ. And as we're going to see when we get into Galatians 6, there are certain uh, arenas of life and the spiritual life that invoke and involve all of the body of Christ. So freedom includes the concept of privacy, but as soon, one thing that everybody forgets is that as soon as you come into a group and you begin to get to know people and you begin to get involved with other people in one way or another, to the, to the degree that you become involved with other people, you relinquish your privacy. privacy some people just want to go into church and sit down and come in and sit study, and leave, and they never say a word to anybody, and they never uh, develop any relationships within the congregation, and that's okay. If, if somebody wants to be that way, and they just want to come and listen to doctrine and leave, that's up to them. But if they come in and they start talking with people, then you have to realize once you do that, you are re- beginning to relinquish aspects of your privacy voluntarily. And once you become involved with other people, you have different spheres of relationships. Some are more intimate than others. And it is within those more intimate realms of our relationships that we have truly given up large amounts of our privacy. And that just goes along with it. But privacy is fundamental to freedom because we have to have the freedom to fail in the same way that we have the freedom to succeed. So we need to take some time, as we're doing, to really study what the Scripture says about the subject of our liberty in Christ. What kind of freedom are we talking about? Well, we have seen in Galatians 3 and 4, we're talking about freedom not to do whatever we want to do, but the freedom from the bondage of the law and freedom from the control of the sin nature and the power of the sin nature. We began by defining freedom as the quality or state of being free, including the absence of necessity, coercion, and constraint in choice or action. You see, as an unbeliever, we only have one option. We either are operating from the area of weakness in the sin nature, producing personal sins, or we're operating from the area of strength, producing human good. But we're always operating from the sin nature. You cannot produce, as as an unbeliever, anything that has any value as far as God is concerned. You cannot produce divine good. All our works of righteousness are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. So you are not free as an unbeliever. You are in bondage to the sin nature. And that's the point that we saw last week in our uh, survey of Romans chapter 6. So if freedom is the quality of state of being free, including the absence of necessity, coercion, and constraint then as an unbeliever, you are not free because you, have, you are being coerced and you are under the control, continual control and domination of the sin nature. Secondly, the definition read that it included liberation from slavery or restraint from the power of another. 
And you see, at the moment of salvation, we are freed from the, from the slavery to the sin nature and the power of the sin nature over us. So we have that freedom now to serve Christ and to obey the Lord and to apply doctrine and to produce divine good, which we did not have prior to salvation. Now, when we ask the question, from what are we set free, we have to understand this context of Galatians. And we saw last week that in Galatians 3 and 4, we're told that, one, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law in 3.13. Secondly, that we were all imprisoned by sin. That's from the Greek word, soon klino. It's different in the English, but the thrust of the Greek word is in prison. 3.22, we are in bondage to the law, guarded or kept in custody by the law. And 3.23, we're enslaved to the law as a child. In the same way that a child is slave to the pedagogue in the analogy to the Roman system of adoption in 3.24, we are slaves to religion. Even if you're an atheist, see, athe- what most atheists don't realize is atheism is a religious position. It's a theological position. It's a theological position that God does not exist. But that is just as much a statement about God as a statement that God exists. Either one is a statement about God. That's why in the early 70s, the Supreme Court ruled that secular humanism was by definition a religion because it made statements regarding the existence of God and uh, a relationship to God. There is no God. You can't have one. That's secular humanism, but that's still viewed as as a religious position, although... Uh, in the attempts of the secular society to try to free themselves from the constraints of religion and to free the schools from so-called religion, they just they, they run into a self, or an, an inherent contradiction there because they're trying to uh, absolve. You cannot absolve the schools, the public schools, of religious positions because the absence of a religion is as much a religious position as the promotion of any particular denomination or religion. And therein lies the major contradiction and problem that our secular society faces. So in our first point, we asked the question, from what are we set free? And the conclusion was that we have been set free from the penalty of sin. And this takes us back to the overall plan of God, phase one, where we are saved from the penalty of sin, Phase two, where we are saved from the power of sin. And then phase three, where we are saved from the presence presence of sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin. This takes place at justification. This is a moment in time, instantaneous, a nanosecond. At the instant you put your faith and trust in Christ alone, you enter into the plan of God. At that instant, you are saved for all eternity from the penalty of sin. And then you enter into the into phase two, the spiritual life, and the issue there is are you're going to use your volition to grow to spiritual maturity and thereby be a witness in the appeal trial of Satan in the angelic conflict, or are you going to use your volition negatively and be a failure and a testimony to those uh, to the problem of disobeying God and trying to live a life in autonomy from God and independence from God. Either way, you're going to be a testimony. You're either going to be a bad testimony or a good testimony. And then phase three, we are saved from the presence of sin and we are absent from the body face to face with the Lord, uh, always with Him 
in heaven throughout eternity. So those are the three aspects of freedom, and we are focusing on the phase two aspect, freedom from the power of sin. Point number two in the doctrine was that freedom was secured by Christ's finished work on the cross. We see this in our verse in Roman, I mean in Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And there we have the aorist active indicative of the Greek word eleutherao. E-L-E-U-T-H-E-R-O-O. And this has this meaning of freedom or liberty. I prefer the sense of liberty because it has a better sense to it than freedom. And freedom, of course, involves the confusion, often free to do whatever we want to do. And then we looked at Romans chapter 6 and the first 15 verses of Romans chapter 6, which emphasizes the doctrine of positional truth. Positional truth emphasizes our eternal position in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a number of positional realities. These are things that are true not by virtue of our experience, but by virtue of what God did for us at the moment of salvation. One of these is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is non-experiential. When you are trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior at the moment of salvation, you are entered into union with Jesus Christ by means of God the Holy Spirit. This identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, which occurred 2,000 years ago, is the doctrine of retroactive positional truth. Current positional truth is identification with Christ as He is now seated at His position at the right hand of God the Father, after the resurrection, ascension, and the present session, and all of his current provisions for the believer. There are 40 different realities that God the Father provides for us at the moment of salvation. These are ours for all eternity. And in the spiritual life, what we're doing is learning what these assets are, what these spiritual blessings are, so that we can then live in light of them. But they are never taken away from us. And they are ours for all eternity, and one of these is our freedom in Christ. Another is our eternal security. Another, all the aspects of salvation are part of those positional realities. Our redemption, the propitiation of God, uh, reconciliation, all of these are part of our positional reality. And this is the basis of our freedom. We may not feel free, but we are free. We may not feel like we're saved, but we are saved. We may not feel like we're forgiven because we're so overwhelmed with guilt and shame and disappointment at our own failures, but that doesn't mean that we aren't forgiven. All of those are our realities regardless of our experience. And we looked at the first uh, 15 or so verses of Romans chapter 6 last time in a, a rather survey fashion in order to demonstrate this principle that our freedom was secured by Christ's finished work on the cross. Now, that brings us to point three. Point three is our positional sanctification. This is positional sanctification. We are eternally set apart. That's what sanctification means. The root word, Greek word, from which we translate the word sanctify or sanctification is My mind went blank. 
the root word for holiness, hagias. The root word for holiness, hagias, is where we get the word. Looks like this in the Greek, hagias, H-A-G-I-O-S. And this means to be set apart. Now, unfortunately, it has been translated forever and ever as holy. And holy is one of those religious words that often uh, loses its real meaning over time. It's been used so frequently that it no longer has its impact. And when we think of holy, we often think of some plaster saint who never does anything wrong and can never do anything wrong. And they have this sort of otherworldly look on their face and they live this uh, life walking around in some rarefied atmosphere and they never let and they never sin or do anything wrong. That is not what holiness means. The root word for holiness, going back to the Hebrew kadosh, has to do with being set apart to the service of God. It doesn't have an inherently moral nuance to it. For example, in the Old Testament, when you would, they were building all the furniture that would go into the tabernacle and into the temple, they would sanctify it. Well, how can a physical object be morally pure? It can't. Furthermore, the feminine noun, Kadesh, referred to the temple prostitutes at the, at the Baal worship site. Now, how can a temple prostitute be morally pure? You see, the root meaning doesn't have the idea of being morally pure. It has the idea of being set apart to the service of God. So when we use the word sanctification, that 25-cent word that we don't use very often simply means to be set apart to the service of God. So when we talk about our positional sanctification, we are talking about our position in Christ, that at the moment of salvation we are united with Christ and we are set apart for the service of God. Now, the whole spiritual life of phase two is the idea of growing to spiritual maturity so that as we grow spiritually, our lives become more and more set apart to the service of God through spiritual growth. So, point number three is our positional sanctification provides freedom from slavery to the sin nature. And let's turn back to Romans chapter 6, verse 15, and just see how that is developed in the last half of Romans chapter 6. <coughs> Excuse me, Romans 6:15. Paul begins in verse 15 with a rhetorical question. He says, "What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace?" You see, that's, doesn't that sound familiar? There are people who think that because we are under grace, we can sin and get away with it. But nobody ever gets away with sin in the spiritual life. You see, God is still the supreme judge, and God sits on the supreme court of heaven, and it is God's responsibility, and He will exercise the responsibility of disciplining every single believer. Hebrews chapter 12 says, For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. The Lord will discipline every single believer under the law of divine discipline. And so the Lord will do that continually to bring us back into line because God's plan for our life is for us to grow to spiritual maturity. And when we get out on our own, living in carnality, God will 
exercise whatever is necessary to bring us back to a position of obedience to Him. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And Paul says in the Greek, meganoida. No, definitely not. It's a very strong assertion. What he is saying is law, it relates to the Mosaic law. It doesn't mean there are no mandates in the spiritual life. The spiritual life still has absolutes. This is the plan of God for our life, but it is under the umbrella of grace. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves of obedi- slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Now hold your finger there, and let's turn back and correlate this to something Jesus says in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, Jesus has been speaking, and now he's to his, to his disciples, to a mixed crowd really. And he says in verse 31, let's pick up the context, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, that is Bible doctrine, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now later when Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer in John 17, He prays to the Father, sanctify them, that is, set them apart, sanctify them, phase two, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. So we have to let the Bible define its terms. So the word of God is the truth. That's what Jesus means, and we talk about that in terms of the whole realm of Bible doctrine. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This isn't some academic knowledge. And so, you know, you often see this thing plastered over libraries and academic institutions, and it doesn't have anything to do with, with sort of an abstract concept of the truth. It has to do with knowing the Word of God. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So you have positional sanctification, and then you have experiential sanctification and experiential freedom. You see, the only basis for true freedom in life starts in the spiritual life. There is no true freedom anywhere else, and no matter what kind of governmental system you live under, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the only true freedom there is in this life. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, as soon as he said that, it immediately aggravated and antagonized the Pharisees. And so there were a few Pharisees sitting out in the crowd waiting for him to say something for them to jump on, and they said, in opposition to him in verse 33, We are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. I don't know how they could even say that. Because at this moment in time, they were enslaved four different ways. They were enslaved, first of all, to the Mosaic Law. Secondly, they were enslaved to their own interpretation of the Mosaic Law and the rigid system of legalism that we know as Pharisaism. Third, they were enslaved to the Roman Empire. Politically, they were under the domination, under the heel of SPQR, Senatus Populus K. Romanus. And fourth, they're all in bondage to the sin nature, which is the point that Jesus makes in answer to that in verse 34. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Now, I want you to pay attention to that definition of slavery. He said, if you are committing sin, 
then you are the slave to sin. What is he saying? He's saying when you choose to sin, you are making the sin nature your master. Now, that's the point that Paul is making back in Romans 6.16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves of obedience, anyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. When you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Now, here he's talking to believers. He's not talking to unbelievers. So when he mentions death, we have to define what kind of death is this. See, in the Bible, there are several different kinds of death. There's physical death, there's spiritual death, there's sexual death, there's carnal death. And carnal death is what happens when we choose, as a believer, to go outside the bottom circle. When we choose to sin, we come under the control of the sin nature and we begin to live under the control of the sin nature or the flesh. The Bible uses the word sarks as, as a reference to the sin nature and the term sarkikos for fleshly. And that's how it's translated now in New American Standard Bibles. And in the Old King James, it was translated carnal or carnality. That's where we get that word. So carnality is just an old English term that became a technical theological word for living under the control of the sin nature. And, and we are grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. And the only way of restoration is 1 John 1, 9. But when we choose to sin, the, remember the sin nature tempts us and it is our volition that is the choice of sin. We choose to sin. Whether we are fully conscious of the fact that we are volitionally engaged at that moment is not the issue. We choose to do it, we want to do it, and we do it, and that's the issue. Whether we're fully aware of it or not, or we are fully conscious of our decision is not the issue. We do want to do it, and so we do it, and therefore we are culpable, and at that moment we become a slave of the sin nature again. But notice as a believer we have the option of obedience to God, starting with 1 John 1.9 confession. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. We are restored to fellowship with God, and we can then resume the spiritual life, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, and that is obedience which results in righteousness, what we have defined as production righteousness. This is the righteousness that is human, I mean, excuse me, is divine good, and that is righteousness that has eternal value. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, that is, in, as an unbeliever, you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, that is the mind there, the, the cardia, the innermost part thinking part of the cognitive function of the soul, you became obedient from the mind to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That is, they accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and became positionally free. And having become freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. You see, positionally we are freed from the sin nature, but we are positionally slaves of righteousness. The problem is we want to go back under the old master experientially, and make ourselves slaves to the sin nature, and that produces death. That was back in verse 16, sin resulting in death, which is carnal death. When we are separated from God the Holy Spirit, and the end result of this, if we stay in extended carnality throughout our life without growing to spiritual maturity, then we go through intense suffering, intense divine discipline. We make ourselves absolutely miserable, self-induced misery, 
we have instability, emotional instability, psychological instability, and even if we have a measure of happiness in this life, we ultimately will be miserable and we will lose that marvelous and fantastic inheritance that has been reserved for us in heaven that is related to our obedience to the Lord not and, and joint suffering with Christ. And we forfeit that and we will have shame at the judgment seat of Christ and be absolutely miserable because of our failures and squandering our life on this earth in phase two. Paul says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, the inner lobe of the mentality of the soul, to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms, verse 19, because of the weakness of your flesh. This is the Greek word sarx, which is the sin nature. Because of the weakness of your flesh. See, we still have a sin nature as believers, and anything an unbeliever can do, we can do as a believer, and we continually struggle with the fact that the sin nature wants to assert its authority over us and go back to that old system of slavery to the sin nature. Verse 19, he goes on, For just as you, were, as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, that is, as an unbeliever under the power of the sin nature. So now, as a believer, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Now, notice what that is saying. This is a command. The implication is that we cannot do this. The implication is that we can choose to not do this. We can choose to not present our members as slaves to righteousness. In other words, the implication is that you as a believer can choose to live out here in carnality under the control of the sin nature and live a life that's going to end up in misery and temporal death. And so the mandate is you are now a believer. Go on continuous action here. It is an ingressive sense of the imperative. Go continually present your members as slaves to righteousness. The idea of the present tense here is the, that is the same idea presented in Galatians 5 when it says to walk by means of the Spirit. It's a moment-by-moment, step-by-step, volitional decision of submission to God the Holy Spirit once you are restored to fellowship and filled with the Holy Spirit, that you are continually moving forward in growth. The spiritual life is a moment-by-moment uh, life. It is not a one-shot decision. You do not walk the aisle, raise your hand, or go through some other form of uh, revivalistic gimmick and say, okay, from this point on, I'm going to be walking the line, walking the life, living the life. It is a moment-by-moment decision that you have to make to keep in fellowship. And as soon as we slip and we sin and we find that we're out of fellowship, we need to keep short accounts, confess those sins, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and keep moving forward. Constantly keep moving forward. And that's the idea that Paul is saying here, present your members as slaves to righteousness. Take on this mentality that you are going to be a slave to righteousness, and that results in sanctification. Not positional sanctification, that is ours at the moment of salvation. But this is experiential salvation. This is how you grow as a believer to overcome the power of the sin nature, phase 2. Verse 20, 
For when you were slaves of sin, that is, as an unbeliever, you were free in regard to righteousness. That is, you could not produce righteousness under the continuous control of the sin nature as an unbeliever. No No divine good, only human good. Verse 21, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. In other words, you are going to make yourself eventually absolutely miserable in this life as long as you continue under the control of the sin nature and refuse to face the fact that God has called you for a purpose, and that is sanctification, to overcome the power of the sin nature in your life through the filling of God, the Holy Spirit, and the application of doctrine. So that means that the highest priority in your life needs to be learning doctrine. We need to constantly sit back in life and reevaluate what we're doing, how we're spending your time, what we're spending our energy on to make sure we are not being distracted by many things, many of which are good things and wonderful things and enjoyable things, but ultimately they distract us from the mission that God has given us. So we continuously have to stop and refocus and say, okay, what are the priorities in my life and how am I actually spending my time and my energy? I want Bible doctrine to be the highest priority in my life and I want the highest issue in my life to be growing to spiritual maturity, but I'm spending all this time and all these other activities and I need to rein some of those in and make sure I'm back in Bible class whenever there is Bible class because I need to be continually reminded there's so much to learn. Even now, after 20 years, over 20 years in professional Christian ministry, I have an accumulation of over nine years of postgraduate academic work. I don't think I'm even scratching the surface of what the Scripture says. And if I'm not, you're definitely not. (laughs) And the thing is that we have so lowered the standards in our churches today that the, the average pastor and the average seminary professor out there has a, has a standard of Christian education and learning that has gradually lowered over the years to what they think is academic instruction a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago would have been considered very basic nursery school instruction. I love to read the old Puritans. Now their theology is suspect at times. They get into a little bit of legalism and they are the precursors of what we call lordship salvation today in many aspects of their theology. But one of my favorite uh, theologians of the 18th century was Jonathan Edwards. Now, some of you may not know who Jonathan Edwards is. Jonathan Edwards was one of the foremost preachers of the First Great Awakening. He was pastor of a church up here in Northampton, Mass., and before he, right before he died, he became the president of Yale, and then he was struck down with smallpox, and the Lord took him to, to be with him. But even Time Magazine back in the 60s had an article on the greatest minds in America and listed among them Jonathan Edwards as probably the greatest theologian and philosopher ever produced in America. His writings are voluminous and awesome. And he stood up in his pulpit every Sunday and taught this material that, frankly, I have, have had a very difficult time wading through. And yet everybody in the congregation not only understood 
but the Lord used him as one of the key figures in one of the greatest true revivals that ever occurred in this country. Thousands of people came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior when they listened to Jonathan Edwards proclaim, and one of his most famous sermons was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which he preached several times, but its most effective presentation was uh, in a small town in Connecticut. And there were people groaned visibly. I mean, this is not some sort of uh, experiential emotionalism. It was one of those rare events in human history when God the Holy Spirit moved in a phenomenal way over the congregation, and as Edwards taught the truth, the people were so deeply, deeply convicted by their own sinfulness that it almost physically crushed them, and they groaned and wailed over their sinfulness as they understood it proclaimed from the pulpit. Now, that's something I would have liked to have seen. I mean, you just don't see that happen very often. And because of the preaching of, of Edwards and a, a British Anglican by the name of George Whitfield during that time, it, it just reshaped American history during about a three-year period of time, which is known as the First Great Awakening in American history. But they understood these dynamics, and you understood when you look at what they taught, um, there was incredible depth there, and the average person in the pew understood it. I had I used that illustration one time, and somebody said, well, they didn't understand it any more than we did. Not by looking at their reaction. I mean, it, it revolutionized. Literally, there was a spiritual revolution in this nation as a result of what they taught. And the average person in America today, the average Christian, won't even take the time to read it because, oh, that's just for academic study in seminary. And yet, these were sermons preached to everyday farmers and blacksmiths and craftsmen and it revolutionized their lives. And we've lowered our standards so much that what we think is deep, deep doctrine is in truth only very shallow, baby, basic doctrine. Read Hebrews sometimes, and when you get to Hebrews chapter 6 and you haven't understood 80% of what you've read, and the writer of Hebrews says, now we need to leave these elementary things behind and move forward to advanced doctrine, you will know something of which I'm talking. You see, we've lowered the standard so much, we need to get into the Word and really mine it for the true gold that is there, because that's what produces spiritual growth, and we need to make that a priority. And it doesn't happen simply by showing up on occasion when we feel like it. Verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you were, are now ashamed? For the outcome of these things is death. Death is the opposite because it's putting ourselves back under the slavery of the sin nature, the opposite of the spiritual freedom we have in Galatians 5. Okay, that's point number three in our doctrine of spiritual freedom. Positional sanctification provides freedom from slavery to the sin nature. Point number four. The new life we have in Christ is uniquely a life in the sphere of the Holy Spirit, which is the sphere of freedom. This is something that is often lost today. We are living in an era, and we're going to get into this in more detail. I'm just setting the stage now over the next two or three weeks for the, the culmination of all of this at the end of Galatians 5. 
we have failed to realize and we have forgotten that according to Galatians 5 and a number of other passages, Romans 8 included, we live in an age that is uniquely characterized by the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That the spiritual life is a life empowered and energized by God the Holy Spirit and not by man. We have confused morality with spirituality so that we are trying to be spiritual simply by following a moral code of conduct. And yet the Bible says that that it, we are to live this life in the power of the Spirit. Romans 8.2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life, that is the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and death. And this tells us that in this sphere, the filling of the Holy Spirit is uniquely a life of freedom. Freedom is related to living in the power of the Holy Spirit under the filling of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8.2. This is further emphasized in 2 Corinthians 3.17-18, through 18, which is our point five. The basis for living in freedom is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. The basis for living in freedom is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 17 and 18. There are two sources of power for living the spiritual life. About ten years ago, there, there was a movement known as, as uh, the Signs and Wonders movement. This was the latest sort of tick in the development of the broader history of the Pentecostal movement, what they called the third wave of the Holy Spirit. The first wave was the initial movement of the Holy Spirit. I'm using that in quotes at the beginning of the Pentecostal movement in January 1st, 1901 up to the 1950s, almost 1960, I think. Then somewhere around April of 1959, Dennis Bennett, who was the rector of St. Mark's Episcopal Church out in Southern California, spoke in tongues. Now, he did not leave the denomination up to that point. In classic Pentecostalism, whenever you start speaking in tongues, you left and you joined a Pentecostal denomination. Well, at that point, he didn't leave the Episcopal Church, although he did leave that Episcopal Church. Uh, and from that point on, you had the development of the, what was called the Charismatic Movement, which is the so-called second wave of the Holy Spirit in the Pentecostal movement, and that's where people begin to seek the so-called gifts of the Spirit, the second blessing, baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, which had traditionally been separatistic Pentecostal uh, doctrine, and they began to seek all of those experiences, but they stayed in their traditional denomination. So now you have uh, Catholic Charismatics and Presbyterian Charismatics and Methodist Charismatics and Baptist Charismatics and all kinds of other things. And then starting in the 70s, you had what was called the third wave of the Holy Spirit, which was started by a guy named John Wimber out in Southern California. And his big books were Power Healing and Power Evangelism. And the emphasis that if you want to have real power in your preaching, then it has to be accompanied by signs and wonders. That was his idea. And what made him appealing was that he got rid of a lot of the, at least on a superficial level, he got rid of a lot of the emotionalism and ecstatics that were going on. And believe me, I've been out to his church several times, and it was only at a superficial level. And um, it had a big appeal, though, to traditionally anti-charismatics in Bible church movements. And I have several friends who got sucked into that. 
But what he wanted to say, and the basic thesis of that whole power evangelism movement, was that the real power in the spiritual life is miraculous. But what do you do with passages like Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And over and over again in the Scriptures, it is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, which of course includes the Gospel, that's the power in the spiritual life. That although there are miracles, that miracles were always rare in human history and they were designed in the age of the apostles to authenticate their, their message, it was their calling card until the canon of Scripture was completed. So the true power in the spiritual life is not the Pentecostal power of miracles and signs and wonders, but it is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Now, when we come to 2 Corinthians 3.17, this is defined here. It begins, now the Lord is the Spirit. This is a very important passage on the Trinity because here it defines or relates the Holy Spirit to deity. The Lord is the Greek word kurios. Now, where many people get a little confused sometimes, every time they see the word Lord, they want to make it mean one thing or another. And sometimes it just has its secular meaning. In, in, in America, where people still have good manners on occasion, you will hear someone say, yes, sir, and no, sir. And if you were speaking Greek, you would use the word kurios for sir. It was just an everyday polite address to, to someone of superior, in a superior position. So that's one use of kurios. Another is that it is the word that was used to translate the, old, the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, which will transliterate like this, Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, and indicates deity. A third meaning of kurios was that it related to uh, sovereignty. Now, this is where the lordship crowd gets messed up, is they want to take Lord every time they see it, that you have to believe that Jesus is Lord, as meaning Jesus is the sovereign of your life. But that is not the sense. Jesus, When you read Jesus is Lord, it is this sense, identifying Jesus, with Yahweh, and we're going to see that in a lot more detail in the second hour. Jesus is Yahweh making a claim for deity. Well, here in verse 17, when we see that the phrase, the Lord is the Spirit, this is identifying the Holy Spirit with the traditional name of God, Yahweh, or Kyrios, Lord, and is a claim that the Holy Spirit is full deity. Now, in verse in the second half, it says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, where is the Spirit of the Lord in the believer's life? It is in the bottom circle when the believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. It this sphere is the sphere of liberty. Now, the Holy Spirit is fully God, and He is the power of the spiritual life, and that's why in Ephesians 5.18 we're told, we're commanded to be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. So only when we have the filling of the Holy Spirit do we have spiritual freedom. But we can confess our sins and be back in fellowship momentarily, and then we sin again. So the issue isn't simply being filled with the Spirit through grace recovery 
of confession, but is continual walking by means of the Spirit. It is not just coming back into the bottom circle, but it is staying in the bottom circle. Now, this is the thrust of verse 18, where Paul says, But we all, that is, as believers, with unveiled face, and that goes back to the image where Moses would go in and meet with God, and, and as he met with God inside the tabernacle, the glory of God was, was reflected in his countenance so that when he came out, it would, it would shine. And as long as people saw that, they tended to listen to him, but when it would begin to fade, they would quit listening to him. So he would wear a veil over his face so people wouldn't know whether it was what the degree of intensity was. And the implication is that as believers now, we have an unveiled face as we are confronted with the Shekinah glory of God, the glory of God and of the Lord in the Word of God. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. When we look into the completed canon of Scripture, that is the mirror. We behold the glory of the Lord. Now, let me tie a couple of things together. Most of you usually come on Wednesday night or and the second service, so we're going to tie all of our studies together here. In James chapter 1, we have the <clears throat> mandate that we are to be not merely hearers of the Word, but appliers of the Word. And then in James 1.23, James uses the analogy of a mirror. If anyone is a hearer of the Word and not an applier, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. So there's the analogy. You look at the Word of God and it reflects you as you truly are. The only source of true objective knowledge for self-evaluation is to confront yourself with the Word of God and the truth in the Word of God. And so, and it says that a person who's just a hearer is like someone who goes and looks at the mirror, sees whatever is wrong, and then immediately leaves and forgets it. And then they go and live their life as if they saw nothing. And then the contrast is, but the one who looks intently, and that is the Greek word that indicates bending over and taking a very long, concentrated, studious look at something, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. Now, you see how we're tying these concepts together. By James, in the New Testament, the Word of God is now being called the law of liberty because it is the source of doctrine that teaches us about our freedom in Christ. So it is being redefined as the, and, and, and restated as the law of liberty. Now, this relates to the person who is applying doctrine. So it relates to the mirror analogy. The mirror reflects the Word of God. So we look in the Word of God like a mirror. We see the glory of the Lord. Now, what is the glory of the Lord? In the Old Testament, it taught the Shekinah glory of the Lord. This is the visible presence of God. So that when they had the tabernacle, or, or even further back, when Moses went up on the mountain and saw the burning bush, that burning is the Shekinah glory of God. When you have the, uh, the tabernacle out in the wilderness, you would have the uh, pillar of fire that would go before them. That's the Shekinah glory. When the, the, uh, uh, later on, when, the, when, when Moses went into the tabernacle and came out and his face shone, that's the Shekinah glory. That's a visible representation. When John and James and Peter went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and there Jesus revealed himself in all of his glory, that's the Shekinah glory, and they immediately fell on their faces and worshipped him. But, Remember when we were studying in John. Now we're going to tie this into John. 
when we were studying John in the first chapter, John, remember, was one of the three apostles who went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. John is the only gospel that doesn't tell us that story. It's included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke who weren't there, but John who was there doesn't tell us about it. But what John says in John chapter 1 is about Jesus, he says, and we beheld His glory, glory is of the only begotten Son of God. Now, if you remember, I said that the glory there doesn't refer to the Shekinah glory. It refers to the glory of Christ as displayed in His everyday acts of compassion and providing the spiritual needs of people. So that glory in the Scriptures is not to be simply restricted to the Shekinah glory, but is to be defined as seeing Jesus Christ in all of His aspects and all of His ministries. That's where we see the glory of the Lord in meeting the ultimately meeting the spiritual needs of man through the death, burial, and resurrection. So, Paul says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. That's where we have this face-to-face encounter with God, is face-to-face with the Scriptures. And we see ourselves as we truly are, and we see the Lord as He truly is. And the result of that is that we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So its ultimate source, that's the thrust of that last clause, just as from the Lord, the source is the Lord and the Spirit. Now the word here, transformed into the same image, is the same word, metamorpho, which is used in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed into what? Into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So here we see that the two power options What is it that transforms the believer? It's living in the sphere of freedom under the God, the Holy Spirit, so that we're free from free from the power of the sin nature and control of the sin nature, so that we can apply doctrine in our lives and advance to spiritual maturity. Because it's the filling of the Holy Spirit, it's the Spirit of God and the Word of God that are the power options in the spiritual life. So from this we learn that spiritual freedom is the environment of all believers under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, and the believer is to use his freedom to advance to spiritual maturity, to let the image of Christ be formed in us. This is what uh, Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 3, or Galatians 4.19, Christ formed in you. This is the process of sanctification. Now, all of that is point number five, that the Spirit of God and the Word of God is the environment for our spiritual freedom. Point number six, the basis for this transformation we see then is the completed canon of Scripture, which is now called the law of liberty in James 1.25, in contrast to the Mosaic law, which was characterized by bondage. The Word of God is called the law of liberty because it defines our freedom to serve God under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. This is mentioned not only in James 1.25, but also James 2.12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. See, liberty doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we want to do and we're free from any kind of evaluation from the Supreme Court of Heaven. We are going to be judged by the law of liberty so that we are in violation of the Word of God and living in carnality The Supreme Court of Heaven will take care of us under divine discipline. Point number seven. 
The purpose for spiritual freedom is to advance spiritually as bond slaves to God and not to excuse, justify, or rationalize our sin. The purpose for spiritual freedom is to advance spiritually as bond slaves to God and not to excuse, justify, or rationalize our sin. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. So when you see somebody saying, well, I have the freedom to sin, what they are saying is that I, I am free to be in bondage again to the, to the sin nature. The, the, the Scripture says you have two options. You're either in slavery to the sin nature or you're in slavery to God. That's it. Choose your slavery. Choose your master. But you are never your master. You only think you are. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom. Brethren, that's positional freedom. You were called to freedom, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, that is, the sin nature. So using confession as a license to sin might restore the believer to um, fellowship for a nanosecond, but you will instantly sin again because you are abusing the grace of God. When you use confession as a license to sin... It just restores you to the temporary bondage of the sin nature. It will destroy spiritual progress, and it makes a mockery of grace. So when you use confession as a license, it doesn't do anything for you spiritually. Point number eight. The enemy of freedom and grace is legalism, which promotes intrusion and superficial external codes of ethics and morality and focuses on failure. See, legalism focuses on what you do wrong. Grace focuses on what you're doing right. Because what you've done wrong has already been paid for by Christ on the cross. So grace promotes freedom, privacy, internal transformation, and focuses on success. Well, that's eight points. We have about five or six more to go, which we should cover very briefly next week, and then we'll continue on in our study of Galatians chapter 5. But the point of our spiritual freedom is that we have been freed from the power of the sin nature to serve God, not to serve our own desires. For that in itself is a restoration to carnality and bondage to the sin nature. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word today and to see this incredible freedom that you have provided for us, that indeed we are free from the control of our sin nature, so we do not have to sin. We do not have to yield to the sin nature, even though we often will and frequently will, and we will always struggle with the sin nature throughout our spiritual life. But we know that we have freedom and recovery through 1 John 1, 9. And may we use that as a tool to advance spiritually, that we may focus on the goal of spiritual maturity, that we may be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ for your glory. Now, Father, if there's anyone here this morning that is not sure of their eternal destiny, we want them to know that that can be uh, resolved right here and now simply by faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So, Father, right now, if there's anyone here without hope, without certainty of their eternal destiny, they can know that all they have to do is say, 
forming words and thought alone. Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and I accept this free gift. That's all that's necessary. Father, for the rest of us, we pray that we would be reminded of the things that we have studied today. We know the Holy Spirit continually brings these things to our mind, to our thinking, in order that we may apply them on a, on a daily basis. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.